Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. As you can see from the title slide, tonight's topic is the fall and original sin. So this is like uh, when we did that topic uh, towards the very beginning, um, the, it might have been the very first session that I did with you guys, but the, we have to spend time looking at the bad news to fully appreciate and understand the good news, right? So this is, uh, this is heavy tonight, but it's also going to be good. So uh, that's what we're doing. Um, it's also a perfect time of year to be looking at this topic. I, I was thinking about that this morning, that uh, with us in the midst of Advent now, um, yeah, this is the season where we like reflect on the fact that the Lord in his intense, insane mercy came in the flesh to rescue us, right? He came in the flesh to rescue us, to ransom us, to retrieve us from our predicament, right? Advent is the incredible like buildup to the, the incarnation, God taking on flesh to rescue and redeem us. So, now, uh, throughout the course of becoming Catholic, there's going to be various moments where I show you some very incredible footage. So I've got a video for you tonight. I don't know if you know this, but we have in the records of the Vatican actual video footage of the fall of man. And I, I can't think of a better thing to start our time together with than this horrific video I give you the fall of man. We need more volume. This is Adam in the garden. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait. Wait. Huh. Huh. Oh, gosh. Horrific. It's absolutely horrific. I give you the fall of man, everybody. A round of applause for the fall of Adam. Here we go. You're not supposed to applaud the fall. That was a trick. All right. Here we go. All right. So, Christianity, friends, Christianity is predicated upon the fundamental presupposition that, like, that humanity stands in need of a savior, right? Like, Jesus is the savior. We believe this, right? Jesus is the Savior, and we stand in need of being saved. If we didn't need to be saved, this religion of ours is very bizarre. It's very, very, very bizarre. This is why we start every single Mass with a penitential rite, 
right? Well, Mass doesn't start with this sort of self-congratulating, let's you know, all talk about how great we are. Mass, every Mass starts with, brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge our sins to prepare ourselves to celebrate these sacred mysteries. Let's become aware again of the fact that like we stood in need of a savior, we stand in need of a savior, and we will continue to need to be saved throughout the course of our life. Right? Jesus has come to save us, that something has gone wrong, terribly awry in this human project, this story of creation, something's gone awry. One of my favorite quotes on the fall is from a church father named Gregory of Nyssa. He wrote this, sick, our nature demanded to be healed, fallen to be raised up, dead to rise again. We had lost the possession of the good. It was necessary for it to be given back to us. Closed in the darkness, it was necessary to bring us the light. Captives, we awaited a savior. Prisoners help, slaves a liberator. Are these things minor or insignificant? Did they not move God to descend to human nature and visit it? since humanity was in so miserable and unhappy a state. Again, Advent, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. This is, this is the story. This is the heart of the story, that the Lord has come to rescue, right? He's come to rescue. Another great quote from G.K. Chesterton, who was a 20th century English writer. Original sin is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. He's like, just look at the newspaper. Just open a newspaper. There's your evidence, right? It's everywhere evident. It's so evident that something has gone wrong with us on such a fundamental level. And like no system of human devising could remedy this, right? There's, this is part of the problem in our world today that the issues are deeper than politics. They're deeper than law. They're deeper than think tanks, right? It's it's in us on such a deep fundamental level. Our hearts are bent. Our hearts are bent. We are not where we're meant to be. Something has gone wrong in our story. Like something has gone wrong. The vision the church has is that this world of ours is not neutral territory. This world that we live in is a fallen world. Not only are we fallen, we're going to talk about this, not only are we fallen, but all of creation is fallen. Like we have all fallen. This is our story right here. We've all fallen and we can't get up, okay? This is, this is every human being. This is all of creation. So we need a savior, right? Jesus is the savior. Here's the question, but what is he saving us from? And what is he saving us for? What is he saving us from? What is he saving us for? We talked about at the beginning of becoming Catholic in that first session, we talked about how Jesus is coming among us was a lot like the landing of the soldiers at D-Day. Like the presence of soldiers on the beach presupposes that there's an enemy, right? They came there to confront an enemy. They came there to rescue and liberate. They came there to confront a tyrant, right? They're not there because they wanted to just see what the beaches of Normandy were like. They weren't there because they're like, I just, I want to hop out of this boat right now and go for a walk with my buddies. They're there to fight. Like the second person of the Trinity storms the beach of creation in the incarnation in order to confront an enemy. We talked about this at the beginning of the year. We talked about how as a result of the fall, all of humanity fell under the dominion. This is the word that St. Paul uses. The dominion 
of darkness, the dominion of the enemy. When we hear the word dominion, think, think of like a tyrannical government. That like everywhere, it's pressing in upon you. Right? St. Paul, when he references sin, he's not just talking about the sins that you and I commit, the sins that I do, the things that I fail to do. Like before there's individual sins, there's sin with like a capital S, sin. It's this oppressive reality that's everywhere insinuating itself into our world. He said, this is the world we live in. Remember, I used that example of the human trafficker. I, used the, I think I used this example of the, uh, those, those three girls from Cleveland, Cleveland the, uh, oh gosh, Amanda Berry, Michelle Knight, Gina DeJesus. I think we talked about this. Is this right? Yeah? Okay. I, can, I can't remember what I, who I, what I said to whom. All right. So those three girls taken captive by Ariel Castro, held in his basement for 10 years. It was Amanda Berry who conceived a child that she was allowed to, I mean, he permitted her to carry this little girl to term, Jocelyn. Jocelyn was born into the basement. She was born into the circumstances of oppression into the circumstances of evil. Like her whole world was conformed by this. And this, this is the world into which we are born. This is the world into which we are born. Okay, but what we're going to do tonight, we're going we're to press into this a little bit further. Like how do we understand this thing called original sin? Because we have to understand this. If we miss this, it's going to be very confusing what Jesus is doing on the cross, what we need a Savior for. And I'm, I'm going to be generalizing in a very intense way here with the views of Protestants versus the view of Catholics. Because as Chris said in his presentation, there's so, such a variety in Protestant theology. So to simplify things, maybe with too broad a brushstroke, but that's all I have tonight. So... Forgive the uh, generalizations. We're going to look at it this way. Okay, so we have a very different view of original sin, and because we view it's because we view the human person differently. We view what original sin affected in the human person differently. Okay, so in the Protestant view, which is more the left side here, what you have here is that we are what the human person is is sanctified crap, essentially. Like we are dung that gets made to appear holy is the essential view. Like the grace of Christ, it covers our nature like snow covers a dunghill, right? Martin Luther said, our righteousness is dung in the sight of God. If God chooses to adorn dung, he can do so. So we are clothed, we are cloaked by, we are covered by the righteousness of Christ. There's a fundamental warping, a, a, a complete devastation that happens in the Protestant view as a result of original sin that we are ruined by sin. Completely compromised. Completely compromised. Man is a bad tree and can't produce good fruit. We're a dunghill. Okay, what about the Catholic view? The Catholic view is this, that we're not ruined by sin, we are wounded by sin. That's a huge difference. We're wounded. We're wounded by it. Okay, 
we are not crap that's sanctified. We are, we are holy humanity. I love this. The grace of Christ heals and perfects our nature and renews the whole world as a result. The grace of Christ renews and perfects our nature, and as a result of that, it affects the whole world. Because we are the pinnacle of creation. We give voice to every voiceless part of creation. So as Christ renews and sanctifies our nature, it has an effect on the cosmos. John Paul II, this is such a beautiful quote. If I could invite you to, to reflect on any quote tonight, it'd be this one. He says, the sacraments infuse holiness into the terrain of man's humanity. They penetrate the soul and body with the power of holiness. They penetrate the soul and body with the power of holiness. So like in the Protestant view here, if we are this dung heap that's covered by God's righteousness, in the Catholic view, We're not a dung heap, we're a compost pile out of which grows something beautiful, right? The Lord infuses our humanity with his grace. Like this is how we see Jesus. Jesus enters into the murky waters of the Jordan side by side with sinners. We see Jesus not being afraid of the stench of humanity. He enters in at the very beginning in the cave of Bethlehem, right? What do we think that cave smelled like? Pretty good or pretty bad? Pretty bad. Pretty bad. He could have chosen to be born in the palace. He could have chosen to be born in luxury. But he entered into the rough brokenness, the stinky reality of that cave. And it, like, it, it, he just never changed course. He comes to Bethany, and Lazarus has been in the tomb dead for three days now. Now it's the fourth day. And he says, roll away the stone. And it's Martha, Lazarus' sister, who protests. And she says, Lord, there'll be a stench. Like his body's been rotting in there. Like, I don't think you want to smell that. This was a few years ago. One of my buddies, uh, they were away on vacation. And their freezer chest in their garage, the power went out. And all of this meat that was in the freezer went really bad. Okay, so he called me, and he was like, I, I'm calling you because I really love you, and I know you really love me. Um, can you help me clean out the rotting meat chest in our garage? I'm like, oh, God. I'm telling you, like, there, it felt like for weeks I couldn't get it out of my nose. Like, the stench of rotting flesh. And here's Jesus Roll away the stone. Lord, there's going to be a stench. Roll it away. He steps into it. Lord, my humanity is this dung heap. He's like, that's okay. I'm going to infuse it, penetrating the terrain of body and soul with holiness. That's what the sacraments are doing every single time, infusing it deeper and deeper. I love this from John Paul II. Man must be reconciled to his natural greatness. Soak that in for a second. You have to be reconciled to your greatness. Like what I love about John Paul here, he say it's like, it's not that we think too highly of ourselves. We don't think highly of ourselves enough. Like our nature is that which God entered into. Like he created humanity with the capacity 
of being united to divine nature. What does that mean about what it means to be human? It's an extraordinary thing. Like, no squirrel is going to be united to the divine nature. Like, Jesus does not enter, he doesn't have a hypostatic union with a squirrel. There's no, like, Jesus squirrel walking around. It doesn't happen, right? Squirrels are cool, but they're not capable of being united to the divine nature. What does it mean to be human? It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. We have to be reconciled to our natural greatness. So something important to realize here is what is the nature of this wounding, right? So the Catholic view is that our nature has been wounded, not ruined. What is the nature of this wounding? What, what has, in this analogy, what has been wounded? Well, to simplify it again, we can say it this way. Our intellect and our will, right? So our intellect is that capacity in us that is conformed to or is oriented towards the truth, that we have an ability to know the truth. We can conform ourselves to the truth. And our will is oriented towards the good. We can choose, right? We can choose. We have freedom. And because of all of this, we have the capacity for love, right? So whereas before the fall, we effortlessly perceived the truth. And after the fall, we easily fall into deception. So think about that, right? Like before the fall, it was, it was an effortless, spontaneous apprehension of the truth. Like I just was just able to see it, understand it, and grasp it. Now, after the fall, our intellect is darkened and we can get deceived easily, right? Darkened intellect. And with the will before the fall, we effortlessly and spontaneously chose the good. Effortlessly and spontaneously chose the good. And after the fall, our will is bent. And we pursue apparent goods, false goods, things that aren't actually good. So our intellect is darkened, our will is weakened, our will is bent. The word in our tradition that we use for this, Augustine coined this phrase, is concupiscence. Concupiscence. A way to think about this is like, <laughs> this is a very simple example. So like a few years ago, I was uh, trying to make a turn in a, uh, doesn't matter where it was. I was making a turn on a very snowy road, and my car, I was taking the turn a little too fast, and my car didn't do what I wanted it to do. And I went, and like my wheels were turned, and I slammed my front right tire into the curb. And as a result of that, my tires were, from that point on, just like, meh, bent, right? So anytime I was driving for a while, anytime I was driving, I had to be constantly like fighting against this. If I let go, my car was going where the tires were bent. My car was inclined in the direction that I didn't want it to go. That's our human nature. That's concupiscence. We are inclined against the good. We have this natural proclivity, this natural tendency to choose selfishness, to choose apparent goods. So here, here's the more scholastic formal definition here. So we have in our nature, we have appetites like attractions, desires. We have appetites that are fleshy. We have appetites that are carnal. We have appetites that are earthly. Like before coming here tonight, 
Uh, at about five o'clock, I was hungry, okay? Carnal appetite, fleshy, earthly appetite, body saying, put food in me, okay? Carnal, fleshy appetite. We also have, because of our nature, we also have appetites that are spiritual, transcendent. Like, I need, I need truth, I need goodness, I need beauty, I need love, I need these, I need these things in my life, right? So carnal, fleshy, earthly appetites, spiritual, transcendent appetites. You with me so far? Yes? Okay. Concupiscence is the desire of the lower appetite running contrary to reason or not in keeping with our final end. So it's, it's allowing the lower appetites to run the show without reference to, without being ordered by reason that says like, like you have to always keep in mind your final end, which is heaven, it's glory, it's being with God. So like, it's fine to have hunger, but like, don't fall into gluttony. It's fine to, to desire sexuality, but don't fall into lust. Right? It's fine to like, desire to work hard and, and make a living, but don't fall into like, this sort of avarice. Don't fall into this desire for more and more and more for greed. Like, so this is, what, this is what concupiscence is, right? So it's, it's a desire for these things that's bent against our final end. So our human nature, darkened intellect, weakened, weakened will, which leads us to choose things that are contrary towards our final end, our final goal, which is heaven. How are we doing so far? I know this is a little bit heady, but you with me? Give me some of this. Excellent. Okay. So as a result of original sin, the human person lacks what the church calls sanctifying grace, which is simply just the grace that conforms us, that conforms us to our final end. So it's like when God said at the beginning, like, the day you eat of this fruit you will die. You will die. You will expire. You will, the word expire literally translates to breathe out. Right? So we look back at the creation of Adam, the creation of Eve. We see in Genesis that God forms man out of the dust of the earth, out of the clay of the earth. Then it says, and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. He, bre- he breathes this sanctifying grace, this, this divine life into him. And what happened as a result of the fall is that that was breathed out, expired. Now, spoiler alert, flashing forward to Pentecost, Jesus on the morning, he comes into the upper room and what does he do to the apostles? He breathes on them. (sighs) Receive the Holy Spirit. Spiritus, pneuma in the Greek, breath. So from the beginning, we were breathed out. And by God's grace in Jesus, and we're going to get to this more, we were, suddenly it was all back in. We now have the power of sanctifying grace. This divine life is now in us again. It's in us again. Okay, so the Council of Trent, which was in the 16th century, is that correct? Great, okay. Got a nod from Sam and a nod from Chris, so that's good. Okay. (laughs) Keep me honest. Thanks, guys. Council of Trent, in response to the Protestant Reformation, it articulated the the Catholic Church's teaching on original sin with the clarity 
and, and a precision that was very common in that era, the scholastic sort of era, the way of thinking about these dogmatic issues. It, it clarified the church's teaching as a result of this because the reformers had a very different view of the human person. They were popularizing a very different view of original sin. So I want to show us a video. It's a commentary from Bishop Robert Barron. This is when he was still Father Robert Barron. It's his commentary on the movie World War Z. Has anybody seen World War Z? Okay, it's, a, it's an awesome zombie movie, okay? I really don't like zombie movies, but this one's really good, okay? You got Brad Pitt in it and uh, other people and um, some zombies. But um, it's brilliant. It's really, really brilliant, and it's worth, it's worth taking a few minutes to watch this. So, uh, Bishop Barron, teach us, please. Well, the movie uh, World War Z is a uh, very competently made thriller, I'll say that, and it's not like a typical summer movie driven by all the CGI whiz-bang, which as you know drives me crazy. It's a really good thriller. Secondly, it has a very good uh, depiction of a father, which is so rare I find in TV and movies today. It's you know the Homer Simpson, Peter Griffin model of fatherhood, a sort of uh, incompetent slob. Uh, this movie shows a father, played by Brad Pitt, as a very intelligent, very resourceful, uh, dedicated, self-sacrificing person. So I, I like that about it too. But what I liked the most was it provides a very intriguing template for thinking about sin and salvation. Now, in many ways, it's the typical uh, zombie story. But in this case, uh, the, the family, Brad Pitt's family, hears about this strange virus breaking out around the world. And then it comes quickly, very close to home. They're in a traffic jam in Philadelphia, and suddenly there's chaos all around them, and they're forced to flee. Uh, it becomes clear that there's this virus which turns people into the walking dead, into zombies, who are fiercely hungry for human flesh, and so the disease is spreading very quickly around the world. One thing that made this movie particularly frightening was the zombies were not your typical kind of lumbering oafs we've come to expect, but these were very fast and very deft uh, teeth-gnashing killing machines. And so that made the movie, you know, a little bit more, uh, more frightening. Well, the family escapes to a ship off the eastern seaboard, and it becomes clear that Jerry, the character played by Brad Pitt, is a former UN special ops person who's been sent into these, you know, hot spots around the world, or he's an expert in all this. And he's pressed into service to figure out where this disease came from, to go back to the origin of it, and then try to find a you know, solution. So he flies first to uh, South Korea, and then he wings his way across the planet to Jerusalem because it's determined that the uh, Israelis figured out a way to build this giant, thick, high wall to keep the zombies out. So Brad Pitt goes there to try to figure out what's happening. Now, here's what struck me about it. Oddly, during the movie, I was thinking a lot about the Council of Trent. <laughs> here's why. The Council of Trent says that sin is passed on from generation to generation. Propagatione et non imitatione. Latin for by propagation, not by imitation. If you want, it's a disease concept of sin. And I want to say a word about that. Because most of us, I think, would instinctually opt for the more, um, you know, um, imitatione theory. That, you know, I see people doing bad things, 
I find it attractive for perverse reasons, and so I imitate it. A bit like picking up a bad habit or picking up a way of speaking from hearing someone else speak, or, oh, look at that behavior, I'll try that, or look at how they're dressed, I'll dress like that. Well, that's imitation. And the you know psychodynamics of that are interesting, but that's a relatively superficial um, dynamic. What's deeper is propagazione, by propagation. Sin is passed on, Trent says, not in that first way, but in this deeper and more abiding way where it's caught more like a contagion. Now, here's a good trope for it, I think. Consider a, a, a baby who is gestating in the womb of a mother who's addicted to crack, and the baby is born an addict. Is the baby responsible? No, not in some moral sense. The baby didn't choose it. But yet, it's in the baby in this very deep, organic way. The baby inherited this contagion, this virus, this problem, like a disease. The official teaching of the Catholic Church is that sin is much more like that than it's something which is simply uh, picked up by habituation or by imitation. More to it, Trent says. Sin, inherited that way, leads to a falling apart of the self. What's meant to be an integrated self, think of mind, body, spirit, emotion, and so on, um, linked to God and therefore integrated. Through sin, the disease of sin, all of that falls apart. And we become, really, simulacra of what we are supposed to be. Now you see why the zombie is such a good symbol of this. The problem is picked up not by imitation, but by propagation. It's a disease that is caught, which leads to a compromising of the self that's so complete that the, the person is a, a simulacrum of a human being. Zombies look and kind of act and move a bit like human beings, but they're really not because they've been so profoundly compromised. So, according to Trent, sin inherited by this process reaches so deeply into us that we fall apart. Now, now, what's the implication of this? It's very important for understanding a Catholic and indeed Christian doctrine. If sin is simply a matter of habituation or imitation, I've caught it from bad influences and so on, well then we could in principle find a psychological, political, economic, uh, sociological, interpersonal solution for it, right? Well, change your habits or, or hang around different people or you know, we'll change the economic and social political arrangements and we'll be fine. But, says the Catholic Church, and this is deeply based in the Bible, any such attempt will be futile against sin because it's not picked up in that way. Now, one of the most memorable scenes in um, World War Z is Jerusalem, you know, so all the biblical overtones are there, protected by this giant wall, and they think they're safe until the zombies figure out a way, and they clamber their way up over the wall, and they completely decimate the city. Any of our attempts to deal with the problem are going to be met with that same kind of futility. So, what's the solution? The solution has to be, not something of our own contrivance, it has to be an antidote, if you want, that comes radically from outside the problem. It's an antidote to this contagion. 
Now, I'll cut back just briefly to the movie. I won't bore you with all the details, but um, Brad Pitt finds this uh, laboratory, and um, he has to go into an inner section of the laboratory where they're kept these very deadly diseases because it becomes clear that the zombies don't attack someone who has a deadly uh, virus. So Brad Pitt's character has to go into the heart of darkness. This place is surrounded by these dangerous figures. Furthermore, he has to inject himself with this deadly virus. And only then is he safe from the zombies and therefore able to make from his blood an antidote for the whole world. Okay, again, you can quarrel if you want with these details and from a medical standpoint and all that. The point is, this figure doesn't fight the zombies on their own terms, simply by shooting or cutting them or killing them. He goes into the dysfunction, very courageously, very bravely goes into the dysfunction, takes on himself deadly disease, and thereby is able to provide a blood-based solution to the world's suffering. Now, you'd have to be pretty opaque, I think, not to see the Christ overtones here. Christ doesn't battle sin on its own terms the way we try to. You know, we'll just fight our way through it. We'll, we'll change the economic and social arrangements. I'll impose my will. It doesn't work. Rather, he goes into sin. As Paul says, he becomes sin on the cross. And then sheds his blood, which becomes the antidote to sin. How do you handle sin in a Catholic framework? Not primarily through psychological um, uh, you know, manipulation. Not through economic uh, changes. Not through political reform. You solve the problem of sin by drinking the blood of Christ. By consuming his body by interiorizing like an antidote the one who went into the heart of darkness to deal with the contagion of sin, which has turned us into simulacra of who we are supposed to be. You see? So step by step, you see in this um, rather extraordinary uh, movie the template for understanding what sin is, what it does to us, and how we're saved from it. And here's something now, I'll editorialize a little bit here at the end. I think at a time when the Christian churches themselves have gotten rather inept at telling the great story of sin and salvation. The movies sometimes do it much more effectively. I think watch this uh, World War Z, and you'll see a very interesting meditation on the problem and the solution. <laughs> I remember I saw that movie in the theater with some seminarians. I was still in the seminary. And uh, a few weeks later, he drops this video. And I remember watching that line where he's like, now you'd have to be pretty opaque to miss the, and I was like, I can't see any of this. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, that's such a great line. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I totally saw that, Bob. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, all right. 
so it's, uh, okay, so Christ is the antidote. He's the antidote. But what is the disease he heals? If he's the solution, what is the problem that needed to be overcome? These are the important questions. I love how the Catechism teaches that we must know Christ as the source of grace in order to know Adam as the source of sin. This is really interesting. The church teaches that to, like, it's only by the light of Christ do we have any ability to begin to grasp the shape, the nature of the tragedy that happened in our beginning. Like, we, we, we're like reverse engineers, basically. Like, we are looking at the solution that was given to shed light upon, well, what was the problem that required that solution? You have to know Christ as the source of grace in order to know Adam as the source of sin. There's this, another image in the book of Revelation where there, this, this scroll in heaven is sealed. The Biblion, the, the great book, it's the scroll of history. It's the scroll of, it's, it, it's, it's outlining everything and it's sealed. They ask, who can open this for us? In other words, who can unlock this for us? The only one who can unlock it is the lamb that's been slain. In other words, Jesus is the, Jesus is the one who, like only by him, only through him, are we able to unlock and understand everything. Like he's the decoder ring. He's the, he's the lens that makes sense of the whole thing. So the, the light of Christ's saving grace, what he did for us, what he accomplished for us, that's what shines a light into the darkness of our beginning that is so veiled by mystery. So by attending to what Christ did and accomplished, we can glimpse, like kind of from behind, what went wrong. Pope uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, before he was Pope Benedict, Christ goes Adam's route, but in reverse. This is so, this is fascinating. Because salvation history is bookended by two trees. The drama of trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the beginning, and the tree of the cross. Also, a man and a woman in the beginning, and a man and woman in the end. And uh, for, uh, the original Adam, the original Eve, the new Adam, and the new Eve. Like this is these are the bookends. These are the bookends. In the beginning, we see Adam's selfishness, and we see Eve's grasping. We see fear. We see doubt. We see lust. With the tree of the cross on Golgotha, we see the limitless ocean of divine mercy. And we see Christ's selflessness. We see his self-gift. We see Mary's receiving, which is the opposite of grasping. We see faith. We see trust. We see love. So again, Christ goes Adam's route, but in reverse. He's undoing the damage. He's undoing it. Again, how Bishop Barron, or Father Barron said, Father Barron, Bishop Barron, whatever, Bob, for our purposes. What he said there at the end, how like movies sometimes do a better job at capturing these realities, capturing the story. I think art does that too. This is a beautiful painting that was, that was done by a nun. It's called Mary Consoling Eve. Just, yeah, just take that in for a second. Obviously, we know which one's Eve, yes? On the left, Mary's on the right. We see Eve in shame. Her nakedness, her body being covered by that long hair. She's holding, grasping on the fruit. You can see the bite out of it. Her head is downcast. 
and she's wrapped by the serpent. And of course, now you have Mary, the new Eve, reaching out, consoling, inviting her to see. And look what she's doing. She's inviting Eve to put her hand on Mary's womb. Right? We say in the Hail Mary, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Right? The fruit that hangs from the tree of life is Jesus. The fruit that hangs from the tree of life is Jesus. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And how do we get access to that fruit? Do we grasp at it? You receive it. You come forward in mass. You open and receive. No grasping. Grasping always leads to bad places. That's good spiritual principle. In cooperation with Mary's humble fiat, this is St. Irenaeus, the knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by the obedience of Mary. What the Virgin Eve had bound in unbelief, the Virgin Mary loosed through faith. Where Adam grasped, Christ received. Where Adam appropriated to himself, Christ emptied himself. The, again, this is Irenaeus. He says that the Ave, so in, in Latin, when you have the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and the greeting, Hail Mary, Ave Maria Gratia Plena, Hail Mary, full of grace. Ave, he says the Ave of Mary reverses the Eva of Eve. Eva being Eve's name rendered in Latin. Those church fathers, man, come on now, that's so good. You got to love that. The Ave reverses the Eva. And look at this. Where Adam sought to be like God, Jesus, who truly was God, became a slave. Where Adam raised himself up in pride, Christ lowered himself in humility. Where Adam disobeyed, Christ obeyed to the point of death. Where Adam hid himself in shame, Christ exposed himself to the Father and to the hands of sinful men. New Adam, new Eve. The person who did this clearly just like Photoshop drew this over the original one. And like they didn't really try very hard on that snake, if you ask me. Oh, you have the green. <laughs> Someone needs to do a better job at this. Abby, get on this for me, okay? There. So we've got some engineers in our midst. Raise your hand if you're an engineer. Oh, hello, engineers. This is all for you, okay? This is how I was thinking about this. We're reverse engineering. I don't even know if this is the right usage of this phrase. If it's not, just don't tell me, okay? Like reverse engineers, we begin with the antidote, the remedy. Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection, and ascension. That's the remedy. That's what's in the serum. That's the antidote. Then we ask the question, what sort of condition or problem or dilemma would require such a response from God? The light of Jesus, crucified and risen in glory, illuminates the mysterious disaster that happened in the beginning from which we need to be saved. Again, just imagine that you're working in a, like a medical laboratory and someone presents you like an antidote. You're like, I don't know what this is for. You reverse engineer it and say, oh, this, is, this takes care of this kind of disease, right? What kind of disease needs the passion, death, and resurrection and the ascension of the Son of God? 
Oh, original sin. That's the disease. That's the disease. Okay, so looking at this, we see this. Uh, let's keep going. We see Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection. What, what does it do? It binds humanity to divinity in the new and everlasting covenant, rescuing us from the dominion of darkness. So, first point. Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection, it glues us back to God in this thing called the new and everlasting covenant, and it rescues us from the dominion of darkness. Like, that's what we're told. That's what he did. Second point, the Holy Spirit sent by the Father through the Son enables us to now love rightly, heroically, in a self-sacrificial way. Back to that image of we expired, we need to be inspired, we need breath into us again so that we can be what we were meant to be. So we're able to love how we were meant to love. The Spirit gives us the power to fulfill the law's deepest demands. Again, I think this is St. Augustine speaking about the law. Like, the point of the law that got multiplied, more laws, more laws, more laws laws throughout the Old Testament, was not, like, they were never going to be able to keep the laws perfectly. Like, the point of the law, this is where the Pharisees got it wrong. They thought, if we just try really, really hard... We can keep the law perfectly, and then we'll be perfect. Now, I know none of us in here struggle with that kind of thinking or temptation. Yeah, we do. All of us. Yeah, okay. That if I can just follow the rules perfectly, then I'll be good. St. Augustine says, no, no, no. The law was given that grace might be sought. And grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. So again, the law was given so that grace might be sought. In other words, God gave the law so that humanity would get to this point of feeling like, we can't do this, man. We can't do this. We can't jump over that bar. I can't do this. And grace was given to enable us to be able to do it. Grace was given that we might fulfill the law's demands. Right? How are we doing so far? I know this is a lot. We doing good? Do we need to take a little break? Deacon, you tell me. He's shaking his head. Let's take a little break. We'll come back uh, at 8 o'clock. All right, we ready to get going again, huh? All right. Okay, so just again by way of recap, that the, the light of Christ shining upon the antidote shines upon the darkness. It illumines that, that our humanity, because of what Jesus did, we have to conclude that our humanity was wounded, right? So darkened intellect, weakened will, compromised will. Our relationship with each other was compromised. Our relationship with creation was compromised. And our trust in God was wounded. Our trust in God was compromised. We stopped believing that God the Father was really good and he was a good father. Like, why, why, like, okay, so like, why do we believe that that is part and parcel of what original sin resulted in? Again, because of what Jesus did. Like, what he brought back to us, what he regained for us. The last point here, that Jesus came to reveal the tender, loving, and trustworthy heart of God the Father, who is not a taker, but a giver. Like, Jesus is the authentic face of the Father. He says, I am the visible, he's the visible image of the invisible God. 
And what you see revealed by him on the cross, like he's not taking anything from anybody. He's giving. He's correcting our faulty image of who the Father is. So again, all of this is to say, like, this is the antidote. This is the antidote. This is what we're, this is what he accomplished. Okay, so we're going to take a deeper look at the text of Genesis, the fall narratives, the fall, to see what is illuminated there by this. So we hear this. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Let's pause there. Notice here how the, ser- the enemy, first of all, don't even look, read the white. Let's start with just the fact that it's a serpent. Okay, so when we think of this story, you, you probably have in your mind, at least I did for a long time, the sort of children's illustrated Bible scenes, right? Little cartoon snake wrapped around the tree. Suddenly has like an arm holding an apple or something like I don't know, it's very weird. The imagery of serpent is very powerful, right? Because I don't know if I went over this at the beginning of the year, but the like snakes tend to be, they can be very, very venomous. They can be very dangerous. They can camouflage themselves, so they hide. They're very subtle. And they're also incredibly fast. So as far as symbols go, as far as symbolic analogical language goes, it's a very apt metaphor of what the enemy is. Also, the serpent who appears in Genesis, we finally see him unveiled in what he is in the book of Revelation, right? Revelation is the unveiling of the reality, and the Hebrew word there is nahash. All going, what does that mean? I'll tell you. It basically translates to gigantic, monstrous lizard dragon thing, roughly speaking. If you've ever been to the Basilica, the National Shrine of the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception in D.C., they have in the back part of the Basilica these huge mosaics. One of them is um, Our Lady, revealed in the, book, in the book of Revelation, next to this monstrous dragon. And this thing is like many-headed, and it's just fierce-looking. It's like, that's who we're talking about. That's what Adam let into the garden. Okay, so... Begin to notice here how the enemy, he doesn't just come outright and say, you should deny God. He's subtle. It's a drive-by. He just subtly twists God's prohibition because God did not say, don't eat of any fruit in the garden. He said, not this fruit. So the enemy is just, he's just twisting. That's all he can do. He can just twist and contort God's goodness. Okay, so he he suggests an alternate account of God's words. Now notice what happens. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. So this is what God said. We can eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. Then she adds this, neither shall you touch it lest you die. God never said that. He did not say, like, don't eat it and don't even touch it. He said, just don't eat it. There's this, there's the further twisting, this further nuancing that God never expressed. It's this contortion of the truth. Okay. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good 
and evil. So what is he doing here? He's introducing doubt into Eve's mind. He's introducing doubt into Adam and Eve's consciousness. This sense that perhaps we've had it wrong. Like, perhaps he's not the good and loving father that we thought he was. Perhaps he's holding out on us. Perhaps he doesn't want our good. That he wants to keep us down. That he's actually more of an enemy, a rival, a tyrant. Perhaps we shouldn't trust him. And because of the doubt, what arises in her heart is fear. And what fear gives birth to is the grasping. If he's suddenly my enemy, then I ought to have the thing he told me not to have. So she reaches and grasps for it. And she eats it. Because that, as she concludes, will make her like God. But again, who in this story is already like God? Eve. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Male and female, who created them. Like She forgot who she was. And this is, this is a crucial point right here. That like, at this point in the human story... There's never been death. There's never been disease. There's never been sickness. There's no sorrow. There's no pain. She's like in pure Edenic bliss. And yet, the enemy was able to seduce. He was able to, to get her to think that God is not really that good. So how much easier is it for the enemy to get us to think that now? Like, there were no hurricanes or suffering of the innocent. There were no people dying on the streets. There were no overdoses or suicides in Eden. Like, there wasn't divorce. There wasn't sibling rivalries. There wasn't sib families ripped apart. This is our experience. How much easier is it for the enemy just to whisper, like, if he really loved you, he would let you have this. Or if he really, if he was really good, he would have stopped this from happening. How much easier is it? It's so much easier. It's so much easier. So as a result of this, as a result of this, humanity, we are expelled from the garden, expelled from the garden, but not without hope. There's a part of this text in Genesis that Scripture scholars call, refer to as the proto-evangelium. Proto meaning the first. So it's the first proclamation of the gospel that comes right there at the beginning. That immediately at the fall, there comes a promise from the Lord. There comes a promise. The Lord says, I will put enmity, he's speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so if someone is, which is a more deadly blow? Crushing of the head or injuring the heel? Thank you for participating. Yes, okay. If your head is crushed, you ain't going to live. If your heel is bruised, you'll be fine. You might have to have an ice pack, but you'll be fine, right? The Lord is saying to the serpent, he's saying, I will destroy you by the power of the woman and through her seed, through her offspring. Right? I love this painting. This is a um, Caravaggio. This is a Caravaggio painting of, you've got St. Anne, Blessed Mother, and the infant Christ 
And I love, I love how her foot and his foot are together, squashing that serpent. So good, so powerful. Okay, let's watch this. This is a clip from The Passion of the Christ that, is just, that just captures this whole fulfillment of the, the crushing of the serpent. Oh, I meant to say this. What's really cool, you look at the Old Testament, you see this, this pattern of these incredibly powerful women who the Lord raises up to confront evil. There's this one woman, I, I think it's Jael. I think that's her name. Again, I, I, I'm blanking right now. I had four hours of sleep, so forgive me. Okay, so um, there's this evil man named Sisera who is asleep in the tent. He's from the enemy. There's this battle going on, and Jael says, come here, I'll hide you. He's the general of the, uh, the uh, opposing army. So he comes into the tent. She lays a blanket over him to fall asleep. And while he's asleep, it says she takes a tent peg. Do I have the names right? Is that right? All right, okay. She takes a tent peg and boom, threw his skull into the ground. Oh yeah, baby. That's Jael for you. All right. There's a, there's a few other examples I'm blanking on right now, but in the Old Testament, there's these beautiful, incredible, heroic women who crush the heads of the enemy as these sort of prototypes of what comes in our Blessed Mother. Like, the enemy is enraged by the fact that his defeat comes through this little girl from Nazareth. Hates it. His pride can't stand it. Okay, let's watch The Crushing of the Serpent. Light I, 
kulet kehu. Hengahel. Kostege demini. Akin lakisfar. I don't think you could see it in that video. There's a little detail where you see the tail of the snake in his nose. Oh! Well, good luck going to sleep, everybody, tonight. Here's, here's a very important point. We're going to uh, land the plane very soon here. Our human story, it doesn't begin with the fall. The fall is an, is, it's an essential chapter for us to recognize and to reckon with, because without the fall, why do we have a Jesus? But the story doesn't start with the fall. Genesis, the fall is Genesis 3. There's Genesis 1 and 2. You have to start with Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2. This is, this is what we were talking about, you know, go back two weeks ago, the, the presentation I gave that was recorded, that we are originally constituted in this perfect experience of union with God, union with each other, perfect integration of our bodies and souls, our minds, our, our intellects, and our wills, everything perfectly integrated. That was the original experience. Like the original, the natural habitat, if you will, of the human person is Eden. Like you go, I remember seeing, you know, you go to, there's, there's no more sea worlds anymore, I don't think, right? Uh, maybe not. You go to sea world back in the day, you see Shamu in the tank. You're like, I remember as a kid, you're like, this is incredible. You're looking back, you're like, this seems really cruel. <laughs> like this is a gigantic <laughs> whale in a swimming pool. 
Um, <laughs> like, this doesn't feel right. And they're like, their dorsal fins are all like, right? Because well, they actually don't even know why, but they know that in captivity, the mer happens for some reason. Like, that's not the natural habitat. That's the technical name, by the way. Right? That's not the natural habitat of the killer whale, right? It's compromised. It's, it's less of what it was meant to be. The natural habitat of the human person is Eden. It's Eden. But things were sundered because of the fall. There was a great calamity. And the original holiness of God's plan of loving good, goodness for us, it was attacked. We were taken captive. Our minds, our hearts were attacked, taken captive. We became willing rebels in the enemy's campaign against God. That's who we were. We became willing rebels, victims this, with this spiritual Stockholm syndrome, where we began to prefer our captor to our loving God. That was the problem. We began to prefer sin and darkness. That's what you hear at the beginning of John's gospel. Right? The light comes into the darkness. It shines in the darkness. But men preferred the darkness. That was our issue. Okay, so next week, next week, we're going to be delving into, in a deeper way, what did God do about this? So we're going to be looking at the entire story, the grand story. Um, what did God do about this? That's next week. Uh, Deacon Rich, what do you got for me? Ah. And we have some hard uh, copies of um, uh, material if anybody needs one of those. They're available, so help yourself. And we have one session for you. Okay. All right, well, let us pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, by your passion, death, and resurrection of your Son Jesus upon the cross, his rising in glory, you have saved us. You've rescued and ransomed us from the grip of hell. Lord, we love you and we're so grateful for what you did to amend the catastrophe that was our beginning, that you are the antidote to the disease that we brought upon ourselves. Jesus, thank you for going Adam's route, our route in reverse, and suffering as your own the consequences of our own sin. Lord, we lift up to you tonight all the prayers and petitions, all the intentions we hold in the silence of our hearts. And for uh, one of our members, for a grandson who's having a surgery next Wednesday, Lord, that you would guide the hands and minds of the surgeons and nurses that his surgery would be successful and he'd be brought back to full health. And how about we pray together the Our Father. So if you, if you need the little booklet, why don't you flip to that page in the, the booklets and let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Deacon, they're yours.